Thank you very much. Um, do make sure you can see Matthew chapter 26 in front of you. And I want to begin this morning with a question. Uh, I want to think about the question, what kind of people did Jesus die for? What kind of people did Jesus die for? You see, we live in a world full of comparisons. We compare ourselves to other people, don't we? Uh, we compare ourselves and we feel either good or bad depending on things like how much money we earn or how interesting our job is or whether we're particularly good at something like sport or music or art or being funny. We compare ourselves to people all of the time. And we can do that as Christians as well, can't we? We can compare ourselves to to other Christians, to other people in church. And what tends to happen when we do that is we feel as though we either do or don't deserve God's love depending on how we compare to others, depending on our performance, depending on how we match up to those around us. So we have days where we feel quite good about ourselves, where things are going well as Christians, and we begin to think, well, of course Jesus wants someone like me on his team. Just look at how useful I am. Look at how sacrificial I can be. Look at how faithful I am. And then we have other days. Other days where we think, I can't really believe that Jesus meant to die for me. I'm not really up to the job of being a Christian. I'm just not like the other people in my church. I'm not like the other people in my life group. I'm not as keen as them, not as capable as them, not as knowledgeable as them. I'm not really sure Jesus meant to die for me. What kind of people did Jesus die for? Well, in our passage this morning, Matthew shows us the kind of people Jesus came to save. And as we look at these days and hours before Jesus' death, we see he hasn't come to die for people who have it all together. He hasn't come for the reliable or the capable. No, Jesus has come to rescue failures. And that's the first thing I want us to see this morning. We are all failures. That's the first thing we need to recognize, and we see it in the example of the disciples. Now, remember where we are in Matthew's gospel. Jesus is on his way to the cross, and as we saw last week, he's with his disciples. He's with his friends, the people who have witnessed his miracles, who've heard his teaching, people who have left behind their jobs and their homes and their families, all to follow Jesus. These guys are the best of the best. They're the people who genuinely want to be with Jesus. Yet as we're going to see, all of them fail him. Look at verse 31. Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. These guys, they've, they've just shared the Passover meal together. Jesus has just told them that he's about to die. He's told them that one of them will betray him. And now he says, the rest of you, well, the rest of you are going to fall away. 
all of you are going to abandon me. I wonder if you've ever made a, a big claim. It said to, said to someone, I bet I can, and then immediately regretted it, immediately thought, I really can't. That happened to me a few years ago. It was the Beijing Olympics, I don't know if you remember that, when it was on TV, and Michael Phelps was the main man of the Olympics. He was the American swimmer who won something like nine gold medals in that Olympics. He was all over the media, and one article said that he ate 10,000 calories every single day while he was training. 10,000 calories. The average guy needs around 2,500, 3,000 calories if they're busy and active. Michael Phelps, 10,000. I was a student at the time, and students make big, stupid claims all of the time. So I decided to tell my friend that I could easily eat 10,000 calories. It's not that hard. It's not that much. So my friend, as you might expect, said, go for it. Prove it. So off I went to buy my food. Uh, but like I said, I was a student, uh, which means I needed to do this on the cheap. Uh, I couldn't afford anything nice. So unlike Phelps, my 10,000 calories was made up of pork pies, chocolate, and all sorts of other cheap, nasty junk food. Uh, about two hours into my challenge, uh, after a breakfast of chocolate milkshake, waffles, golden syrup, and a couple of dairy milk chocolate bars, the big ones, I... Uh, I felt awful. I, I felt so ill, I had to go and lie down. <laughs> I'd made a big claim and been unable to back it up. And so, obviously, my friend laughed at me for a long time after that. Uh, and here in Matthew chapter 26, do you see Peter and the disciples, they make a big claim. Except this is far more serious than eating 10,000 calories. Just look with me at verse 33. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Do you see? We'll never disown you, Jesus. We'll never betray you. We'll never abandon you. We'll die with you, Jesus. It all sounds so brave, doesn't it? So heroic. But Jesus says, no, it's all talk. Because in the end, every single disciple, even Peter, James, and John, will let Jesus down. They'll all let Jesus down because they, like lots of us here this morning are willing but weak. You see, there's an easy test for the disciples here, isn't there, in the garden? Before we even get to trials in court or floggings or executions, Jesus simply asks them to stay up and pray with him. Look at verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus knows he's about to face a terrible ordeal. And so he asks his friends for their support, their help 
in his hour of need. He asks them just to stay with him, to watch with him, to pray with him. It's a pretty low-level request, really, isn't it? It's not asking that much of a friend. But what do they do? They fall asleep. And not just once, but three times. Verse 40, 43, and 45, Jesus keeps coming back and finding his friends having a nap. For all their talk about dying with Jesus, they can't even stay awake with him. You see, they might have seemed willing, but in the end, they're weak. That's what Jesus says of them in verse 41. He finds them sleeping and he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The disciples are willing, but weak. And so they let Jesus down. They fail him. And we can be just the same, can't we? We all have good intentions. Our spirit is willing. But somehow we find we just can't follow through. Our flesh is weak. That's true in the small things. Whether it's a new diet or an exercise regime, or, or deciding to spend less time on your phone, or get to bed a bit earlier. We try these things, we're willing, but eventually we fail, because we're weak. It's true in the more important things. The desire to be a more reliable friend, a more loving husband, a more patient mother. We're willing, but we're weak. And it's true when it comes to our relationship with God. So often we have all sorts of good intentions, but we know time and time and time again, we fail. We sin. We let Jesus down. And so just like the disciples, all of us are failures. But we're unable to do what we ought to do. Unable to do even what we want to do. Unable to do what Jesus asks of us. We are failures. And that is why the gospel is such good news. You see, the wonderful message of the gospel is that whilst we are failures, Jesus is faithful. Jesus is faithful and he has come to rescue Failures like us. He is faithful and he's come to rescue failures like us. And we're going to see more of that a little later on in our service this morning. But before we do, we're going to sing another song now and then hear from Josh in a little bit after that. We're going to sing, Lord, I lift your name on high. So when the band are ready and start playing, let's all stand together and sing. Um, Do turn back to Matthew 26 with me. Make sure you can see that in front of you. Back in Matthew 26. And so far in the passage this morning, our focus, I guess, has been on ourselves. For those first few minutes, we were were looking at ourselves and, and how, like the disciples, we are all failures. All of us have let Jesus down. But now, for the next 10 minutes or so, I want us to shift our focus We're going to stop looking at ourselves and start looking at the Lord Jesus. Because that is where the Bible, that is where this passage wants our focus to be. Not on ourselves, but on him. We've jumped right in 
in our series in the mornings to, to the end of Matthew's gospel. But if we'd read from the beginning, we would have seen Jesus do some pretty amazing things. We'd have seen him healing people, uh, calming storms, feeding thousands, raising the dead. Uh, and all the while talking about God's kingdom, his kingdom. And so in writing his book, his gospel, Matthew wants us to realize that Jesus, this Jesus, is a man like no other. He's the Messiah. He's God's chosen king, God's own son. That's the conclusion Matthew wants us to come to. But then we get to this chapter 26, and we find this amazing man in a desperate situation. Just look at verse 36 with me. Verse 36. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Here we find Jesus in the garden completely overwhelmed with sorrow. Luke's gospel says that he was in agony, such agony that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And so the picture is of a man experiencing unbearable sorrow and pain. A man in agony. And so the question we need to ask is, what could cause this kind of man this kind of pain? What could cause the man who's shown power over nature, over sickness and over death to be in such agony? The answer is found in what Jesus prays. Verse 39. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. The source of Jesus' agony, the source of his pain, is a cup. What's Jesus talking about? What is this cup? And how can a cup cause so much damage? Well, throughout the Bible, the the cup is often used to symbolize God's anger. Or to use a Bible word, his wrath. Just listen to how Jeremiah, an Old Testament prophet, talks about this cup. He says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. The cup symbolizes God's wrath, his anger, his judgment. And lots of people, well, they get upset when they hear of an angry God. But I think that's often because they haven't thought about the alternative. You see, all of us here this morning will have a sense of justice. That when we turn on the television and we hear about 49 men, women and children murdered in New Zealand, when we see evil and pain in our world... We want justice. We want people to be held accountable uh, for the things they do. We don't look at those things and say, never mind, it's no big deal. 
We don't do that, and so neither does God. Because God is perfectly holy, perfectly just, a God who loves good and hates evil. And so he's angry at the evil and injustice in the world. People might say they don't like the sound of an angry God, but, but far worse is an indifferent God. A God who doesn't care about pain, who doesn't care about evil. You see, I think our problem isn't so much that God might be angry. No, I think if we're honest, our problem is that God might be angry with us. We get upset when we realize that in order to deal with this problem of evil, God must deal with each and every one of us. Because you see, the Bible tells us that we're actually much worse than just hopeless failures who can't live up to our own words. We're far worse than that. We are rebels. Each one of us has a a deep-rooted self-centeredness. It's something in us that puts ourselves first, before other people and before God. Something that says to us, something in us that says to God, my will, not yours, be done. And the Bible calls that sin. And it says that sin is at the heart of every single human being. And so the shocking truth is, each of us deserve to drink from this cup. God is angry with us because of the way we have treated him and treated others. Every single person in this room, every single person who's ever lived, deserves to drink from this cup, the cup of God's wrath. Every person except for one. Because remember, Jesus is a man like no other. All through his gospel, Matthew has been showing his readers that Jesus is God's perfect son. That he's the only person who's ever lived a perfect life. A life of perfect love for God and perfect love for other people. And so if there's, if there's one person that doesn't deserve to drink this cup, it is Jesus. But here in the garden, he's in agony. It's as if he's taking the first sip of this cup. And as we're going to see over the next few weeks, as we carry on in Matthew, we'll see that Jesus will drink this cup to the end. He'll drain the entire cup as he goes to the cross. And so the big question for us should be, why? Why is Jesus, the perfect man, doing this? Why is Jesus facing the anger, the wrath of God? Again, the Bible's answer is clear. Jesus is doing this so that we don't have to. You see, throughout history, people have said to God, I'm going to do my things uh, things my way, not your way. They've rejected God, and so they deserve his anger. But did you notice what Jesus prays to his father in the garden? Verse 39. Yet not as I will, but as you will. In the garden, Jesus says to the father, your will be done. Jesus, the perfect son of God, 
does the thing that we are unable to do. He obeys God perfectly. And in doing so, he willingly takes the punishment, the cup that we deserve. He drinks it for us. This is God's plan. This has always been God's plan. This is God's purpose in sending his only son. And Jesus willingly carries it out. Jesus loves his father. And he demonstrates that love by obeying him perfectly. As I say, we're going to see more of what that will mean for Jesus to drink this cup for us in the coming weeks. But as we close... I hope you can see that this passage leaves us with a choice this morning. There's a choice because in the end, the cup of God's wrath must be drunk. Justice must be done. The guilty must be punished. Which means we can either drink this cup ourselves, or we can carry on shaking our fists in rebellion against God, saying, my way, not yours. And if we do that, we will one day face God's anger alone. Or, or we can trust in the one who says, not my will, but yours be done. Or we can trust in the perfect, faithful saviour. The one who was faithful, the one who was obedient even to death on a cross. Or we can come to him. Or we can acknowledge that we are failures that we are sinful and we can trust him. We can trust that through his death on the cross, we can be forgiven. We are restored to a right relationship with God and so can live as one of his people today, tomorrow and forever. So what kind of people did Jesus come to save? He came to save people like you and people like me. You see, it doesn't really matter who we are this morning. It doesn't matter where we're from. It doesn't matter what we've done or not done. It doesn't matter what we can do or can't do. Because in the end, all of us are failures. All of us are in desperate need of a rescuer. Which means... The only thing that really matters this morning is that we have a saviour who didn't fail. We have a saviour who was faithful. A saviour who drank the cup so that we can be forgiven. And so what matters more than anything in the world is whether we know him, whether we trust him. Let's pray that we would do that now. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much this morning that Jesus didn't come to save a particular kind of person. That we don't have to be someone special or clever or or able to do anything in particular in order to be rescued by him. Father, we praise you that Jesus came to save sinners, to save failures like us. We thank you that he was faithful that he obeyed you to the cross for us. 
Father, we pray that we would trust in our faithful Saviour this morning. And in his name we pray. Amen.